Hey there, this is Lewis Johnson taking my love of sports into the world of esports. So I'm breaking down what's happening in the esports industry, talking with great guests, influencers, and tracking their personal and professional journeys to see how all of that has influenced where they are now. And in the end, I hope you're inspired. And so with that, welcome to All In With Esports. All right, everybody, welcome back to another edition of All In With Esports, esportsfuturide.com. And of course, we've got quite a few podcasts that are now available. We're excited about all of it, and you can catch them at esportsfpn.com. Okay, it is great to finally be on the road. This podcast is out of the pristine and quiet, you know, studio. I'm glad to be somewhere live and in person, and it's, it's going to be a lot of fun today. I hope you'll enjoy it. Today, I'm visiting the National Video Game Museum, which is just an incredible complex, about 10,000 square feet, located in Frisco, Texas. So if you're familiar with Dallas, just to the north of uh, Dallas, and uh, just a great spot. And here you'll find everything related to the history of video games. I know because I just saw it. Great tour. Even the music to go along with. Lots of 80s stuff. You're probably going to hear a little bit of Rico Kasich in the cars. <laughs> There's a story coming on that. I'll talk about that a little bit later. But video game consoles, artifacts, other items dating back to the 1980s. And the mission of this National Video Game Museum, per their website, is really to preserve, preserve the history of the video game industry by archiving not only the physical artifacts, but also the information and stories behind its creation. And there are so many stories of games and companies that came and went, some that were supposed to be that didn't happen. It's just unbelievable. All this I've learned in the last hour or so. And the goal is to document firsthand as much information about the creation and the evolution of the video game industry as possible and preserve as many physical artifacts, and there are so many here as possible, for generations to come. If you come into this place, you're going to see what I'm talking about. Even though we're still dealing with COVID, of course, they're doing everything they can to make sure that the uh, museum is uh, going to be user-friendly, COVID-safe, and for all the patrons to have a chance, if you can, to play some of the games uh, during your visit. And you can do that with tokens. It's just unbelievable. So just a quick bit of backstory here. Back in 2009, three people formed the Video Game History Museum and began to look for a place. They were looking for a permanent home. So in September of 2014, the city of Frisco voted unanimously to build out the unfinished area of the Frisco Discovery Center, which is a facility, a bigger building where we are right now, and allow it to be the home of this National Video Game Museum. The three founders are John Kelly, Joe Santulli, and John Hardy, who gave me this awesome tour, and he joins me now on All In With Esports. John, how you doing, man? Appreciate you coming out today and happy to have you here. I am so excited. Let me tell you, it is so great. For me, I'm used to doing live sports, and so I'm used to talking to people like we are face-to-face. -face. We're socially distanced. Sure. We're both vaccinated, so we appreciate that. And to be here to see this place and actually record this podcast with the sounds of the facility happening is really cool. How long had you guys been thinking about or dreaming of doing something like this? A long time. I mean, honestly, we started out, we weren't thinking about museums. We were just collecting as much information, as many physical items as we could back in the days. That was in the early 80s, you know, and before people thought to even worry about saving stuff. And most, yeah. so much stuff got thrown out over the years from companies and whatnot. But it wasn't until we met kind of in the mid to late 90s, we realized we were all doing the same thing, but we just didn't know it at the time. And we came together and we started a convention. 
1999 called Classic Gaming Expo. And that kind of grew, this museum element. Each year got bigger and bigger, and we started taking it on the road. We went to E3 and Game Developer Conference, and we were up to about four or five shows a year, PAX, South by Southwest, all these different shows. And at some point along the way, we were like inspired that, hey, this is great, but it's only you know, for people to see once a year, twice a year. The rest of the time, it sits in storage. And wouldn't it be cool to have something that was open basically all year round for people to come out and see these things? And that kind of pushed us in that direction, you know, yeah. of trying to find a physical place. Right. So once you had the physical place and all that was cleared away, yeah. how long did it take you to actually get everything set up in these stages that we'll talk about and be ready to open to the public? Yeah, it was probably a good two years in the two making. Two years? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, maybe even a little longer, actually, when I think about it, because we actually opened in April of 16, so it's our five-year anniversary, right? But the planning was going back into the late 2013, 2014, mm -hmm. uh, early 2014 time frame. So. Yeah. When you walk in here, the thing that struck me the most were, you know, first of all, you had the television consoles that were kind of put in a real unique way in the uh, in the lobby before you get to the right. ticket window. But when you come in here, there is so much color. Yeah. There is so much just the artifacts are one thing, but the color. Can you just kind of talk just a little bit about all the artwork, all these murals that sure. were done by the different artisans that are local to this area and how they really brought all this, did the walls to life? Right. We, you know, it was just plain walls when they, when the city gave us the space, you know, and finished and said, here you go. And we said, you know, we got to have some, something that pops, some kind of art. And being that the, the Discovery Center itself was very heavily involved with the Frisco Arts Group. Mm -hmm. And we came up with the idea of let's put out a, uh, what they call an RFP, Request for Proposal, and let's see if we can get some artists to come in and paint the place, right? And put up these cool video game design themes and murals. And we were really lucky. I mean, we had probably about two dozen people apply, but the, the five or six people we selected were just off the charts in talent. And, you know... It's just amazing. People come in and they think it's it's decals or stuff. Everything was painted by hand. By hand. By hand. Everything. And absolutely every piece of it is, is by hand. Yeah. And, you know, to see the size of some of these murals and think that one person did that, I mean, and the, and it's so realistic looking, the shading. I, yeah. I could never hold I'm lucky I can draw a, a stick figure, you know. And, <laughs> I'm like you. Yeah, and I, I see this stuff just amazes me every day when I see it. You yeah, know? yeah. It really does bring, like you said, bring the walls to life. And I think people yeah. will be shocked when they see the details. And, of course, they're going to get a reminder yeah. of a lot of the games that you have going on. And they're in particular places for a reason yeah. uh, as we talk about the stages. Before we get into the stages and we move around through the building, kind of give people a description of what they can see. Sure. One of the things that surprised me that I learned from you in this tour was that uh, there were people who created early games that had had no idea what they were creating. Right. They had no idea what the co the impact could be. Right. And some of them exploded to be megastars across the planet, and some of them did nothing. I right. mean, that's just amazing. Yeah, yeah, sure. You know, you look back to, to some of the earliest stuff, and of course, you know, you have to point out Ralph Baer, who was the father of video games, his title, and the, the, the prototype brown box, which we have a, a replica on display. Originals in the Smithsonian, of course. But, you know, at the time, he didn't know what he was doing. And Ralph was a brilliant inventor. I mean, he created the Simon game. They, oh, it yeah. was him, too, oh, right? Yeah. Uh, light gun technology and duck hunt, you know, anything where you're shooting. Light gun screen. technology, so if you went to the light gun yeah, range, he yeah. created that. He, he, oh, okay. And a, a ton of other different things. Just mm. a brilliant inventor. But, you know, this was stuff he just kind of had a passion for, a hobby. And it would be cool. He had the know-how. 
he wasn't thinking ahead like I'm creating an industry. Yeah. You know, and the way it took off, and and you know, fellow people like uh, Nolan Bushnell who created Atari, and you know, Al Alcorn was his brilliant engineer that worked with him, and these guys and Jobs and Wozniak, they there was just something they were in their garage, right? And they never thought this was going to explode to the way it did today. You know, yeah. so really phenomenal something. stuff. Really something. So that was the first thing we saw was the brown box, yeah. which uh, I guess Pong started from there, right? Yeah. And then there's the next thing we saw was this big display of like 50 different games up on the wall. Right. So give us a sense of what that was about and the history it shares there. Sure. The timeline shows off like 50 consoles, probably some of the more popular ones. There's a couple obscure ones in there, but we put them up on a wall just to show a, a, a historical timeline of when systems were released. Now, in addition to those 50, there's a bunch of others that have digital versions and those giant Super Nintendo controllers that yeah, you saw. Yeah. Those actually function, right? And you can pull up any one of those systems and find out more information about it. You yeah. know, uh, A little bit about it, the specs, the year it came out, how many were sold, how much it cost when it came out. Yeah. The good games, the rare games, what was going on in pop culture. So there's a lot of information there to take in. People can sometimes sit there, you know, 15, 20 minutes just looking at all these different yeah. history of all these systems. I'm sure it is interesting to watch people from behind and see what they're, uh, they, where they get stuck. Uh, stage three, uh, you had a great uh, display of third-party systems. Right. So kind of give us a sense of how the third-party companies were coming in and trying to get into the business. Sure. Well, you know, computers are a different animal when we talk about them because they were always programmable, right? And you would program on a computer. So third-party companies existed because anybody could make software by writing a basic program or whatever language assembly. But consoles were traditionally locked down to the manufacturer, right? So if you bought an RCA Studio 2, the games were made by RCA, right? Even the early Atari 2600, the games were all made by Atari. Well, the story goes that, you know, a couple of the programmers at Atari were doing the core of the early games. And suddenly they're saying, hey, Atari is the dominant player. There's millions of consoles installed. And my game just sold a million copies. Well, I'm making twenty, twenty-five thousand, you know, as a programmer, which is great money back in the early right. '80s, right, <laughs> late '70s. But if I had a dime for every copy my cartridge sold, that would be a really awesome royalty, profit-sharing type thing. And you know, the story goes that these four guys at Atari went to management and said, "Hey, we'd love to, you know, have a little piece of the pie. It would inspire us to make better games, the best we can do." And management at the time said, you know, you guys are a dime a dozen. You're no more important than the person on the assembly line, you know. So they left and they formed the first third-party console company, mm -hmm. still in existence today. And that company is Activision, right? Activision Blizzard. So it was really incredible the way that kind of opened the floodgates on consoles yeah. and formed this third-party industry. And tons of people followed suit. And at the time, unfortunately... It got down to the level where any company, any person, you and I could somehow cobble together a video game right. thinking, hey, there's a million consoles. If we just sell 10,000 copies, we'll make a lot of money. But unfortunately, though, that glut of bad software, that because we didn't know how to make a decent game, eventually came back to bite the industry in the, in the behind and say, almost destroyed it. We talk about the big video game industry crash, right. 83, 84 time frame, where people said, this is just a passing fad. Let's, let's move on, you know? Right. And I thought it was interesting, too, here in the museum that you actually 
address the crashes in stage six, which is where we're sitting right now. Right. And you talk about how everything did go down, but then it somehow came back up. Right. Uh, before we get to that, I just I thought that I'd seen a lot of controllers in my house with our boys growing up. <laughs> I thought I'd seen. Right. I have never in my life seen so many controllers and things I'd never seen before. Right. right. I mean, the list of controllers of the display you have is unreal. Yes. Where are you getting all these things from? There's 50 controllers. So back in the day, uh, Maybe not so much today, but in the old days, in the 80s, there was controllers, all kinds of crazy little paddles and, you know, uh, things being made. And even into the early, what we call modern generations, people have made a lot of strange controllers over the years. And, you know, it's just a part of the collection that we've picked up along the way. And everything from little driving controllers or twisting and there's mercury switch ones that you just tilt in the direction you want to go. And right. It's, it's a whole, you know crazy thing pretty neat i loved uh, hearing some of the stories about items that were created manufactured and right. were ready for uh, for sale and then for some reason the company didn't put them out there yeah and the barbie uh, game boy yes. was that's a shocker because that little thing was great looking pink yep. had the had the uh bedazzled uh, case yes. that going right <laughs> and you're telling me they didn't put it on the market I don't know why. I wish I knew more about that. You know, two big companies, Mattel and Nintendo, right? And too many, too many CEOs overthinking it in the maybe boardroom, they right? Were. You know, the, the the Barbie Game Boy is one of two known to exist in the world. One of two. Yeah. And yeah. you have one. here. We have one of them. We almost had the second one, but it, it, someone else, I think, was willing to pay a little more for it. But okay. The problem with it, you know, it's beautiful, right? It's like a sparkle pink see-through Game Boy. Right. It comes in a, a sparkly silver little pouch carrying case has a little charm on it you know obviously marketed to women and how they would not have sold a million gazillion copies of that i, I it just would have been crazy the amount of, of money they could have made right i just don't know the whole story why that didn't come to be but yeah definitely a missed opportunity you know so who's to say in 2021 that something like that is a throwback reintroduced to the to the market might not be something that you just get the right person with a million or two million followers you know you get the yeah. right person showing that they're playing this game and all of a sudden everybody wants one I, I does that sound crazy or no and especially <laughs> with the stuff you see coming out today i mean everybody's into retro right everybody's right. making these mini systems and you know the nes classic and they made a little mini genesis and a mini playstation so much of this retro stuff is coming back there's whole companies devoted to making retro games now so yeah i think you know so you need to hold on to that uh, yeah matter of fact let's have a conversation <laughs> when we're done with this right we'll see what we can do <laughs> okay, right exactly so from there that was stage five so we're like i mentioned we're sitting in stage six you yeah. talked about the crash of the video game yes. uh, really industry what brought it back well you know a couple of things so obviously nintendo was the, the at the time came into the picture and said you know, and they, Nintendo was smart. Everybody's sour on video games. They don't really want to hear the word video game, right? Mm. And Nintendo came in, and they had the original name for the NES was the AES, the Advanced Entertainment System. Didn't say video game anywhere, right? Even the Nintendo Entertainment System doesn't say. And what they did is they they realized that the consumers were were sour because parents would go out and they would find a clearance bin of video games, and they'd buy ten you know ten games for a hundred bucks. Or, you know, four games for $40, when traditionally one game would be $40, right? And they'd bring them home, and they'd feel like a champ to their kids. Look, I yeah. got you four games. Kids didn't know how, know how much they, pay, they paid for it. But those games were really garbage, and mm. that really destroyed the market. Then you started seeing the good stuff end up in the clearance bin, and everybody just kind of forgot about it. But Nintendo said, 
you know, we have a different system here. You can't write just a game. Nobody can just come in and write a game for our system. We have this special chip in there. Yeah. It's called a lockout chip, right? And you can't make a game for our system. Now, years later, people figured out a way around that. But at the beginning, you had no choice. But you send your game to Nintendo. If they thought it was good enough, you would sit back. They would publish it and produce it and distribute it. And you'd get a check. And they would put their seal of quality, right? That Nintendo seal of quality meant... We're guaranteeing you this is a fun game, it's a good game to play. And that's really how they brought back that consumer confidence in the in the industry because they had a high highest quality games. You know, I was talking about you and I cobbling together a game and yeah. we sent that to Nintendo. They'd send guys and big guys in sunglasses to our house. <laughs> Don't ever send us another game, you know. Right. But yeah, so that's really how it came back and, and, yeah. and they brought that back. And you know, people started to then realize, hey, oh, this is a good deal. Now of course we know Nintendo forgot all about that seal later on with the, you know, the DS. When they got into that era, you'd go into Best Buy and you'd find just tons and tons, racks of party games for $10 and just what we would call shovelware. You know, any old garbage game. But but it, luckily at the time, they did the right thing and that, that's how we got back from, from the brink. Man, you reminded me of a story. I was at, in uh, Beijing doing the Olympics in 2008. Right. And uh, everybody was going to this big store, six yeah. levels. I call it six levels of combat shopping. Okay. And the reason <laughs> I call it that is because the, the people who worked there were very aggressive to try to get you to buy things. Sure. Well, our kids were still kind of young, right? So I went up on the electronics floor, and they had all these games for the Wii. Oh, yeah. Right? Sure. And it was some other games. So I bought like 50 games. They were a dollar a piece. Oh, wow. I'm like, I'm going to be a hero when I go back, yeah, right? So yeah, I have sure. all these games. I brought them back. Yeah. And I said, hey, fellas, here are these games. You guys keep 10 apiece and give some to your friends and tell them your dad brought them from the Olympics and yeah, hope they enjoy yeah. it. Every last one of those games was a bust. None of them worked. None of them. It didn't work. None so of them, they were all none, copied none games. Worked. Yeah, probably, none of them worked. Right. Probably bootlegs. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So <laughs> it, was, it was a $50 lesson. It wasn't too, too good expensive. To be true. Yeah. Right. But I learned. I'm like, yeah. man, if this happened in America, people would be upset, oh, sure, which is sure. what may have caused a lot of the problems. Yeah. Having a great conversation here with John Hardy, one of three founders of the National Video Game Museum mm -hmm. in Frisco, Texas. 10,000 square feet of just video games galore, and the history is just amazing. You have a lot of things that were the first here. Yeah. We were looking at Dragon's Lair, and tell me about some of the uh, items that you have that were really first in the industry. Oh, wow. That's tough. It's tough. You know, there, there's a lot of one-of-a-kind items yeah. here as well, one-of-two type things, yeah. you know. It's funny you mentioned Dragon's Lair because it was so historic, right? Iconic that, you know, they had this machine that was, was amazing animation created by a Disney animator, Don Bluth, right? First laser disc game, first game to cost 50 cents, you know? so First was, game to cost 50 cents? Yeah, yeah, sure, back in the day. Based was, on, oh, because they were a quarter before. Quarter, right, yeah. Ah, okay, yeah, okay. Yeah. How about and, that? And uh, the game was so popular. What was interesting is if you went to an arcade, a machine like that, you know, people wanted to see because it's a memorization game. So you have to know, you know, how I move. Do I move left here? Do I use my sword? And people would crowd around so much that the guy playing would be like, oh, you know, take it easy. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of places would put a second monitor on top so that people could stand around and watch mm. the gameplay, you know, at the same time. But going, I'm sorry to jump off topic there. Maybe, no, that's but all right. Talking about first, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, some of the first computers and stuff are in here that we have yeah. in our collection. There's a lot of prototypes, one of a kinds, that never hit the hit the market. And I think you kind of mentioned that earlier. There's a lot of a lot of products and you know things like the MindLink and uh, the Cosmos or some yeah. of these products. So yeah. yeah, there's a lot of stuff here. Pretty neat. Yeah. So as we continue to navigate through COVID, and hopefully we are getting close 
closer to the end of this. Yep. Uh, you've had to modify some of uh, the locations of some of your things, and you had a, a really great party room in the back where yep. I guess kids and families or what have you can come do parties. We can't do sure. that right now. Right. So kind of give us a sense of how you move some of your games into that party room and kind of space them out. Yeah. And that's where I found my game. Yeah, yeah. Centipede. Centipede, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it, was a, it was a real challenge for us. When we first shut down, we were actually closed for three months due to COVID. Really? Which was a was a huge financial uh, burden to yeah. to keep you know payroll and keep people employed at the same time. We did use the time wisely to try to space some things out. So you know where we're sitting now, you see there's a wall of computers. At one point, that was every other computer. Like we right. were taking stuff out and try to get that spacing. Obviously, masks are implemented. I know there's some controversy with people who feel one way or another, but. We feel it's the most important thing we can do right now. Right. Uh, we have put some stuff back together, but yes, the arcade original had 42 arcade machines in it. And let me tell you, on a, on a busy Saturday or a summertime Saturday, it was just wall-to-wall people really? in the arcade. Yeah. And it was, you know, people just love the arcade. It's like the old days, right? Yeah. So uh, we had this room that was a combination of classroom, party room. We've hosted the National STEM Challenge there. In the past, we've done workshops, but on weekends, it's traditionally used for birthday parties. And uh, since we kind of said, well, we're going to stop doing birthday parties, right? We can't really get too crazy. We decided to spread out our arcade machines and make that into a second arcade with, you know, some decent spacing between each machine so people aren't on top of each other. It's worked out. I I think people feel very comfortable here. Uh, You know, we have extra crew that is constantly running around sanitizing, wiping stuff down. We do require masks at all times. Yep. We have gloves available if people want them. So, yeah, it was a lot of learning, different you know, implementation, different things to try to keep people safe. You mentioned something very important for those of us who are involved with MAP Esports Network. And, of course, we're promoting STEAM and STEM learning opportunities. What sort of STEM opportunities did you have here and what will you get back to once things get back to normal? Right. So I obviously mentioned, you know, we do periodically have some types of workshops and coding camps, things like that. We have hosted the STEM challenge and and the rooms available in the museum. We host a lot of field trips, you know, so we have groups coming in. We've had different grants to allow Title I schools to come for free, things like that that really help bring a broad range of uh, diversity and people coming into the museum. One of the things I actually didn't mention to you before is we offer scholarships. Really? So, yeah, every year we offer four scholarships. We offer a Frisco resident because obviously we're in Frisco. We offer a Texas resident. We offer a Texas Title I school. And then we offer women in tech who is across the U.S. that are open to that. And uh, it's not a ton of money. You know, we've only been doing it a couple of years now. But, you know, it's, it helps. Every little bit helps. And we have a, a woman named Amy Dansby who is a big supporter of the museum. She actually supports the Women in Tech Scholarship, and she funds that every year for us. So, And the, the, the scholarship uh, fund is growing, and we're hoping to offer a little more money, maybe some different categories as we go forward. That's awesome. So yeah. it's not just getting people to come and, and pay to get in the gate and then play the games, what have you, but the STEM, the STEAM opportunities for different schools and then also the scholarship opportunities. That That's fantastic. That, to me, seems like a really well-rounded approach to getting people to see where video games, the industry has come and where it's come from. And we're very community oriented. I'll be honest with you. I mean, I'm not tooting our own horn, but you know, we host events for wounded warriors. We do all the different, you know, Hurricane Harvey. We've done fundraisers and matching money for that. You know, tell people donate to this cause and we'll match the difference, you know, or match whatever was given 
So we, we try to do as much as we can as far as you know being involved in that's awesome. And that's awesome. Uh, that and is- I don't think there's a single silent auction we haven't given tickets to free tickets to you know this year you know yeah. since we've opened we get yeah. probably hundreds of requests a year for that and we always give give what we can that's great and i always believe that whatever you're giving you're going to get back some kind of way right we hope just so. the way it works. just come in and check For the sure. place out tell your friends right that's cool that's cool as we continue to move through the museum i laughed out loud when i saw the early vr uh, set yes. with a big huge uh, giant yeah. headset with the glasses and a big huge earphones <laughs> you, know, you have some pretty cool tell people about some of the early vr uh, equipment that you have here some great stuff over there and you know vr like i i think i mentioned to you earlier and we consider VR anything that brings you more into a video game. Mm-hmm. So if you're just using a Wii and you have the Wii Mote and you're playing tennis with it, or that's kind of VR. Anything that kind of makes you more like you feel like you're actually doing something with it. But yeah, there's some great original things. So we have a, a prototype of the Power Glove. The Power Glove was the iconic robotic arm yeah. controller for the NES, right? And we have the original prototype in there, which is just a, a fabric glove that has sensors attached to it. And just really, it's the first time it's ever been shown um, publicly. So it was really cool to get that. You mentioned the giant headset. There's several different versions over there of, you know, eye tracking and all kinds of yeah. you know, different head mounted displays and things like that. And one of my favorites is the Atari MindLink. And the MindLink, you know, and I mentioned to you, Atari was the king of products that never made it out the door. They would spend millions of dollars on things that just ended up in the garbage because they didn't didn't follow through. But they always followed through, like, let's spend as much of the money as we can and then throw it away, right? Right, right. Because the product was basically, looks like it's ready to to ship. And the MindLink was going to read your brainwaves. It was a band that you wore around your forehead. And it was going to interpret your brainwave. So you would just have to think left and your ship would go left or whatever or fire. And it didn't work, right? So, <laughs> that's why I'm laughing because you told me that story. You said yeah, it didn't work. <laughs> and then that's why it's in the case. But, you know, we actually have gotten it to move or function a little bit by making like weird facial tics and, you know, wow. squ- you know scrunching your face. But... Yeah, again, great ideas, but just just never implemented properly. Yeah. yeah, I'm sitting here just enjoying some of the sounds uh, from around the arcade. There's some people back on the other side. You can hear some kids having yeah. a great time. Sure. And then at this kind of the old time store where we're sitting, basically yeah. you're behind the counter. I'm in front of the counter. Right. This is like a little corner where it's like a store with a register that in the crash when things were yeah. we were going out of business and the sign says store closing, everything must go. Right. And so here's where people could come and buy their wares that were that were going out for cheap because they had to shut the place down, right? Absolutely. We, we felt it was important to show this point out of time, right? All these family-run mom-and-pop video game stores, they were great back in the day. You got to, to actually try some games, and, you know, you got to know the people. It was a lot more friendly than the cold uh, aisles of a Walmart or a Toys R Us, right? right. You get some help, no problem. And uh, But the problem is that they were the ones that suffered at the height of the crash, the video yeah. game crash, right? Yeah. And they couldn't absorb the losses and the returns and things like that, and most of them were, you know, all went out of business, but uh, that's why we felt important to show this what it would look like. Yeah, that's you know, what it looked out. like, including a basket about five feet away from us. Yeah. There's a wire basket with about, I don't know, 50, 60 uh, yeah. plastic game cases, right. and on that case it says, clearance sale all items must go right so that's part of a display that's part of let me display. say it again it's a display, <laughs> display. What, what actually happens well you know uh, multiple times per week i'll come out and i'll see somebody 
with a stack of games walking around or they're at the <laughs> bin because they're all marked 99 cents, right? And so they'll go to the bin and a lot of times they're on the phone with a friend. They're like, yeah, dude, they got, uh, yeah, they got Missile Command, they got Asteroids, what do you want, you know? And it depends on my mood that day. If I feel like a little mean that day, I'll let them walk around to get to the gift shop. But otherwise, I stop and say, hey, you know, don't feel bad because everybody does it. Right. Those aren't actually for sale. They're know? a display. Just part of the display, yeah. <laughs> it works. It's it too really, realistic, yeah. It, it really works like yeah. everything else does in here. I don't, we'd be talking for hours sure. about how you collected all these things. But one of the areas I thought that was very cool as well was a display where you allow collectors to come in yes. and bring their items and leave them for, I think you said, about eight months. Right. Right now. Now you've got a Donkey Kong exhibit there, mm -hmm. uh, and later in the future, you're going to have TCU. They'll be exhibiting something regarding Native Americans. So give us right. a sense about how you find collectors, they find you, and then how do you just decide who's going to leave their stuff here and, and for how long? Yeah, it, it's interesting. So that exhibit was originally a sound exhibit we had designed, and we didn't really like the way it turned out. We, did, we felt it didn't get the point across that we were trying to make. So it was the first exhibit we said, you know, it's time to change things up and let's come up with something else. And I had the idea to do this rotating exhibit, not even thinking so much at the beginning of highlighting other people, but someone had approached us and said, a local collector, and said, hey, I collect everything to do with Alien, the movies, right? Which, big favorite of mine. I love the Alien movies, right? Yeah. And he goes, I have all the video games, all the computer games, and plus all these cool statues and displays and stuff and i said let's do it by all means right so that was the first display and we so we kind of call it rotate and we change it out you know periodically eight months to a year the second gentleman we found was a a big fan of that horrible super mario brothers movie from 1993 <laughs> and people will know what i'm talking about and he he actually collected movie props so he had like animatronic goomba heads and bullet bill and the actual dress that the, the princess wore in the movie and it was just amazing stuff and we always like to have an interactive component we have a tv screen that's showing different media related to it and it kind of just took off from there the next person had a uh, na gentleman named ray vasquez had a huge sega channel collection and that you know was a service for the genesis system and he just collected everything to do with that system so we hosted that. And then from there, we have currently Josh Ford has his Donkey Kong Country exhibit, right? Okay. And what's great about these exhibits is, you know, as a museum, yes, we have a lot of stuff, right? But we can't collect everything, right? So there's always these collectors who specialize in one particular topic, and there's a story. So Josh him and his grandfather, they was their bonding thing. They played Donkey Kong Country, right? And you can read his story in there about why he, when his grandfather passed, unfortunately, he got him into collecting everything and for those good memories, right? Yeah. And so it's really a pleasure to host something like that, you know? And Just like, I, like I mentioned, we have an upcoming one probably in, starting in January where we've partnered with TCU, Texas Christian University. The professor there reached out to us about doing Native American representation in video games. And that's something, you know, we've done a lot, seen a lot with women in games as, as a really buzz topic right now. Right. But in my opinion, I can't remember anyone doing Native American. It's kind of unique. I was a little worried at first that there'd be enough, you know, stuff to talk about. Right. But she's done some incredible research. So it's part of her honors class. They're going to build 
during the course of the semester this exhibit and we'll host it then starting that's January. going to be great this it will be really, really need to see that spot where people can come and do those things right um if you're just uh, joining us out uh, we're listening to uh some great stories from john yeah. hardy who is one of three founders of the national video game museum yeah. in frisco texas i got the full tour we're kind of going through things for you and i hope that everybody will get on nvmusa.org and look up what's happening here. And if you're in the Texas area, you need to come and see this place. As we continue to move through it, John, we went through the Flex area, which I saw something very cool, the Singer sewing machine that used to connect to your Game Boy. Yes. We saw the cereal boxes, the Atari items that never came out, that all the board games that we saw that we, I think they were kind of called, some of them were kind of I don't know, cheesy, I don't know what it is. Oh, you know? yeah. Really bad board games. <laughs> exactly. Right? And then we got to stage 13, which was the the old classic 1980s living room. Right. And across the aisle was the bedroom. Right. That living room, man, when I, we turned the corner and I saw that couch yeah. and the Afghan laying on yes, it and yes. the TV and the table and then the old, the, the, the uh, VCR machine. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Where did you find all this stuff? Yeah, it's stuff like we've always done. Like I said we've always done a living room exhibit. Even at E3, the earliest exhibits, we've always had some couch and table and TV, console TV, right? Right. So we've kind of collected a few of those because, you know, it was our it was our thing. It was our go to exhibit that we created. Right. And yes, yeah, so over time we've picked up a few more pieces here and there. We've changed couches a couple of times as they wear out. And yeah. It's getting a little tougher to find and working stuff. But yeah, that, that VCR someone donated. And I remember having that VCR as a kid. Yeah. My father bought that VCR and had a camera. And it was a couple thousand dollars at the time, you know, yeah. for the whole setup. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's like a tank, that thing. Big pops up and yeah. big knobs on it, everything. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. right. The big tuning knobs yeah. and everything, and yeah, it just fits so perfectly. And, yeah, you know, so many people come into that area and really identify. And I hear like, oh, that was my grandmother's living room, or yeah. that was even our living room growing up. You know, and and they, you know, they. I've had people show me pictures of you know having the same couch. Right, look, right. there it is. <laughs> so, and when you look across, you see the bedroom. And then yeah. there's the Ferris Day, Ferris Bueller's Day Off sure. poster, right? Yeah. Got to have that. Yeah. And then the music that was coming out of the box. I mean, we heard yeah. everything. It was like MTV in the eighties, you yes. know, all over again. Yes, yes. I mean, that kind of stuff is so cool. Then you had the Cubart honoring Keith Robinson, who sure. was a really a pioneer of pioneers. Yeah. Give me a quick story on him. So Keith was one of the original television programmers, right? And he he had basically licensed, bought the rights to the games when when INTV shut down. And so he had the rights to basically produce these games or reproduce them on modern systems. So if you've ever played a collection of intelligent games on the PlayStation or one of the little flashback self-contained units, it's because he was pushing and always trying to bring back Intellivision, right? Mm. Unfortunately, Keith passed away a few years ago, and he was a good friend of ours. So we, we have this wall we call Respect that is created out of 660 Rubik's Cubes. Wait a minute. Yeah. 660 Rubik's Cubes. Yes. And when I saw that, yeah. I thought they were like pieces of the Rubik's Cube. No. But you're saying it's 660 full cubes. Full whole cubes. Yeah, and that's one side. Unbelievable. Yeah. And that created that mural of him. It did. It did. Unbelievable. <clears throat> so we, we partnered with SMU locally here, Southern Methodist University. They have a program called the Guild Hall, which is the master's program in video game design. And one of their professors wrote this software that will take a picture and convert it into a cube pattern. And we had the students in his class come out, and they actually solved the cubes. They didn't cheat, right? They didn't pull the stickers <laughs> off or take it apart. Right. And they actually solved the cube and laid them out and then rebuilt up 
stacked them and built this image on the on the wall there for us. Yeah, that thing amazing. is probably what four feet by two feet or something uh, like that. Yeah, absolutely. Five it's feet huge. by it's huge. Yeah, yeah. Um, but all made out of Rubik's cubes. Yep. And they laid it out on the floor, mm -hmm. solved them, and then put it up. And then put Incredible. them on top. Yeah. yeah. And so from there, we moved into one of the final areas, the original Pixel Dreams arcade room. Yes, yes. And that was another flashback for me because I, we had the black lights going. Mm -hmm. All we were missing were the black light posters. Yeah, right, you right, know, right, sure. The music was cool. And then all the games in there. That, that room is like, that's old school video game right there. That's <clears> it. It is. It is. And we, you know, we created this arcade. Let's take everything we remember about 80s arcades that we loved, right? Yeah. They're dimly lit, and they have neon, and they yeah. have all this other stuff. And let's put it all together and into this f fantastic display. And I'll tell you, that is the most popular, you know, exhibit that we have. Right. People love. Because who didn't? It was a social thing back then, right? We talked about, you know, as a kid, you went to the arcade on Friday night and Saturday night. And yeah. if you didn't go... They figured you, man, oh, he's grounded, or maybe got hit by a car. So, like, why else would you not be there, <laughs> right. right? And uh, Most likely grounded. Yeah, most likely, yeah. for the most part, thankfully, right? <laughs> but there had to be some reason you wouldn't show up, right? And, yeah. and so, you know, we, we really try to push that to the limit in the music and the high scoreboard. We have our own custom tokens that, you know, say Pixel Dreams on them. Makes a great souvenir for people. And, and you know, we give you tokens when you come in. You can get more if you need and and it's just fantastic people yeah, love it really really cool yeah. and like any perfect amusement park or game center or whatever i'd say amusement park yep. the last thing that happens is you get dropped into a gift shop your shop <laughs> any <laughs> right. good museum right exactly yeah, yeah. and exactly yeah. that's what happens here yeah. so give us a sense of your gift shop and some of the items that you have available there for people the gift shop is is i always tell people when i do tours make sure you hit the gift shop and i'm not trying to sell them anything that's all right um, that's all right it's part of the deal it is but <laughs> at the same time i want them to see the artwork again yeah you know, we had the, two of our artists teamed up to do that gift shop and if you've ever played an old adventure game where you had ye old item shop where you would buy a potion or a sword or piece of armor that's what our gift shop looks like with the with the amazing job they did with the artwork you know so i always love people to see the artwork there and, and you know some cool cool little easter eggs you'll see like you know the sword from Final Fantasy and the Keyblade from Kingdom Hearts and different things on the wall that you could technically buy right right uh, but yeah the gift shop itself just an assortment of video game related items, right? You might find a Mario Monopoly set or, you know, Tic-Tac-Toe Checkers Monopoly for Mario or there's little mini arcade games and plush dolls and things like that, hats, mugs, you name it, anything a good shop. Shirts are most popular. Yeah. But we have about seven different designs. And they're, they're a lot of fun, you know. So. I'm going to promise you right now I'll be a customer when we finish uh, <laughs> okay. this conversation. I no can't problem. wait to go to get a few items. Yeah. And so going back to where I started, and I mentioned a particular artist from the 80s who yes. uh, you're a big fan of, Rico yes. Kasich in the cars. Yes, yes. And it was in that gift shop that you were standing, and someone came in mm -hmm. with their wife and kids, yep. and you guys kind of thought you weren't sure. Right. But what did you see and what happened? Give us, take oh, us back to that. Great story. My partner, Joe, who lives in New Jersey, is one of the founding members. And he, he happened to be in town that weekend. And we were, we were here. It was actually on a weekday, actually. But he happened to be in the gift shop at this exact moment with me. And we're just standing there talking. And we have a big window that goes out to the lobby. And he suddenly says to me, and we're both huge. I was prefaced by saying huge Cars fan. Favorite band, right? Both of us have seen them in concert together, and we, we love the cars, right? He says to me, man, he goes, check this guy. Like, he looks like Rick Ocasek. And I'm like, <laughs> I do a little 
look behind me and I'm like, wow. I said, that's, yeah, because, you know, Rick, have you ever seen pictures? He's got a real distinct look. And right. I'm like, man, he does look like Rick Ocasek. And then he looks over at the window where the person's, another person buying tickets and he goes, he goes, holy crap, that's Paulina Poroskova. That's his wife, you know, the model. And, right. And they had the two kids and I'm looking behind. I'm like, is that Rick? Could it be? And he just, he, he was looking at us and he kind of smiled. And even though there was a barrier of glass between us, he he could tell what we were saying, you know. And so we came out. I'm like, Rico Kasich? He goes, yeah. He goes, I heard everything you were saying. Oh, you heard everything. Huh? <laughs> what a nice gentleman. I mean, as a as a former New Yorker and living there, and that's former New Yorker. Aren't yeah. you always in New York? Well, I am for life. Of oh, course. okay, that's but, what I you know. But, you know, the Texans get a little upset with me sometimes. Oh, I got you. I got you. But I always tell them I lived in San Antonio for five years in the 80s, so that uh, gave me permission you, to come back. Card. There right, you go. Right. I got you. But, you know, I always figured New York would be where I'd run into him, if I ever did, right? Because he's always being seen in the city in different places. But, you know, he's here at my museum in Texas, Frisco, Texas. Really cool. Great. Him and Pauline and other kids, they're beautiful, wonderful people. And it really was, uh, you know, a dream for me to meet one of my, my childhood idols. I mean, I grew up with the Cars music. And it was yeah. just, it was such an important part of my youth. Yeah. So to get to tell him that, and you know, it was hard. I went wrong. It was hard to control my fanboy stuff. Sure, sure. But at the same time, it was really great to, to meet them and, and have some, some conversations about it. I think one of the best parts of that story is is you telling me the story about it, yeah. and then you realize after it was all over, yeah. you never asked for an autograph, no. you didn't get a photo, nothing I, like that. I was I trying to so... control myself. <laughs> I did run in and put a, a car song on the in, on the in the arcade. Oh, you did? Because <laughs> yeah. I had to play something. Yeah. We have we have car songs in our, our rotation, so yeah. I made sure to get that on. But yeah, you know, I, I I felt funny, and I didn't really have like an album with me, or you know, something I would want him to sign. So. Right. You know, and unfortunately, like I mentioned to you, he he passed away. You know, I don't know a year after that or so. Yeah. But it was a shame. But yeah, no, at least we we got to meet. Isn't that wild? How you know you think about the moments of listening to his music and kind of oh, seeing yeah. him in concert, and then toward the end of his life yeah. and the beginning of the life of this museum. Yes. He walks in the That's door. A great tie-in. Isn't yeah, that sure. crazy? It is. It really is incredible. Yeah. yeah that that might have been like that that ultimate stamp of approval that you had no idea was coming, right? Right, right. Absolutely. Very cool Absolutely. stuff. Well, John, I want to tell you, it has been just an unbelievable journey today, and I yeah. can't I can't implore people enough. If you love video games yeah. and you think you know something about the history of it, you need to come to this place. This is a must-see for anybody who loves video games or has uh, any knowledge of it. This is the place to be. And, uh, John, I want to thank you for the great tour. I appreciate the time here to be able to sure. sit and chat and talk about things in the space. Right. And it has been awesome. And so, uh, John Hardy, one of three founding members of the National Video Game Museum. Again, a must-visit in Frisco, Texas, just north of Dallas. Come up the tollway. You'll find it. It's easy, and you're going to love it. John, thank you once again. Thank you so much for coming out. Yep. Absolutely. So make sure you hit the website, NVM, National Victor Mary, USA, nvmusa.org. You'll get all the information about exhibits, hours, what it costs to get in, or what have you. I don't care how much it costs. It's worth it to come in. You're going to love this entire space, and it's going to take you back. And if you've got your kids with you, uh, they think they know something about video games, you're going to have a great time because you can have a lot of great discussions and maybe even some fun arguments about who did what first because all of it is right inside here. So, again, make sure you hit nvmusa.org to come visit the National Video Game Museum in Frisco, Texas. It'll be just a lot of fun. 
Well, of course, you can always catch everything we're doing at Map Esports Network, esportsfuturei.com. I thank you. As always, I want to thank Aaron and Sia and AJ at Innovation Media Enterprises and Aaron on site today to help facilitate this podcast taping. So thanks so much to her. And don't forget to listen to all the other shows that we have. Lots of outstanding shows, a lot of great content. People are talking about all areas of the esports industry and uh, make sure you get that and of course one link to everything it's esports fpn we've got a lot of other original programming that's coming your way we're continuing to build this network just having lots of fun and hope you are as well this has been a pleasure to be on location from the national video game museum in frisco texas as i always say i hope you've been inspired hope you've been really inspired to get on a plane get down here and see this place and i'm sure you're gonna love it so let's talk again soon, okay, on All In With These Sports, and we'll catch up then. Take care, everybody. Hey, thanks so much for listening to All In With Esports. Now, don't forget to subscribe to your favorite podcast channel, and we would love to hear from you about this or any other shows on the Esports Future Eye Network.